This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, welcome to, th- to the first sa- <clears throat> SAGE lecture of the new quarter. Um, I'm very happy to introduce to you Gerke Grenzer. Um, uh, Garrett is uh, his, he was educated at the University of Munich, and he started teaching <clears throat> there. He's taught at many places: Munich, Constance, University of Constance in Austria, University University of Salzburg, and then we were lucky enough to have him in the, in the United States briefly at the University of Chicago. Uh, but what happened when he was at the University of Chicago was he got an offer from from Germany that's pretty much the equivalent of becoming God if you're an academic. Um, <laughs> he was asked to come and direct, <clears throat> direct a unit at a Max Planck Institute, the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Berlin. And in, in case you don't know about the Max Planck Institutes, um, they're built around an individual human being <laughs> who they think is very interesting who they think doesn't fit into natural categories in the world, and who they think should, uh, whose ideas they think should be invested in. And so they bring you there, and they invest in you heavily, and they free you from teaching obligations, and they give you tons of resources. And you know, there's no university in the United States that can compete with this. <laughs> um, so Gert has been running the Adaptive Behavior and Cognition Unit there for, well, how many, many years now? Since 1995. Um, it's a, <clears throat> a wonderful paradise if you ever get to Berlin and can stop by. Um, uh, I, when I first, I first met Garrett, I was just realizing it's now almost 25 years ago. And uh, it was when he was, it, it was in the early stage of what, of, of what has become one of the most interesting critiques and reconsiderations of the nature of human rationality that I've ever heard. Um, at the time, the, the dominant way of thinking about human reasoning was that it was an error-filled, our brains were an error-filled bag of, of um, rules of thumb, heuristics and biases that were leading us astray in, in many, many different ways. And um, uh, Garrett began a very long process of of, of reconsidering this. I don't want to give his talk for him, but um, re- reconsidering what's the nature of rationality? How should we be thinking about it? Um, what kinds of normative theories are <clears throat> relevant to be applied to, to the human mind? Um, is it really true that our minds are riddled with errors, or are we psychologists not seeing some extremely beautiful design that's there, but we're just looking in the wrong places? These are extremely deep and interesting questions, and, and Garrett has been, there's a good reason why the Max Planck Institute decided to invest in this particular human being. Um, he's won many, many prizes for his, his work, um, including the AAAS Prize for Behavioral Science Research, which was for the best paper in all the social and behavioral sciences for that year. It was for his paper, From Tools to Theories, A Heuristic for Discovery in the Cognitive Sciences, which is a great paper. It remains a great paper. Um, uh, his, he has, he's the author of many, many books from edited collections that are extremely important, um, like The Adaptive Toolbox, um, uh, how, what, something, what, that's the heuristics that make us smart. What, what, 
cognitive heuristics that make us smart. I'm just losing my mind. Um, <laughs> that's close, close enough. And in, I can't I can't see from here. And uh, and and also books that are for the for for the general public to help people navigate the risks of their own lives, um, several of which have themselves won awards. So with great pleasure, I'd like to introduce you, Gerke Grenzer. What is rationality? How to make good decisions? If you look in your textbooks for an answer, you probably get the following message. Good decisions follow the laws of logic, the calculus of probability, or the maximization of expected utility. If your reasoning does not follow these principles, then you end up in a different chapter on cognitive illusions. Now, logic and probability theory are beautiful mathematical systems, but they do not describe how most of us reason, not even those who write these books as the following story illustrates. A professor from Columbia University had an offer to a rival university, Harvard, and he could not make up his mind whether to accept or reject, whether to leave or stay. A colleague took him aside and said, what is your problem? Just maximize your expected utility. You're always right about doing that. <laughs> Exasperated, the professor responded, Come on, this is serious. <laughs> what I would like to do today with you to introduce us to our research on how people make decisions when the assumptions about logic and probability theory are not met. And Herbert Simon's quote was for me the guiding principles. He asked long time ago, how do human beings reason when the conditions for rationality postulated by the model of neoclassical economics are not met? And I would like today introduce you in the answer that we have so far and also in the controversies surrounding the answers. And I start with the key distinction between risk and uncertainty. And then I will give you one example about heuristic decision-making and also the greater pictures. And in the rest of my talk, I will go through the three main points that we try to resolve. What's in the adaptive toolbox of an individual, an institution? What does ecological rationality mean? And finally, how can we use all that in order to help experts to make better decisions. Are you ready? So then we begin. Uh, <clears throat> the key distinction I would like to start with is one that's not taken serious in much of cognitive science and certainly not in much of economics. Between risk and uncertainty. Risk means a situation of risk is one where we know all the alternatives, all the consequences, and we can reliably estimate the probabilities, or we know them. So if you play roulette in the casino, you are in a situation of risk. You can exactly calculate how much you will lose in the long run. Banks have been accused in the last financial crisis to play in the casino, but if they only would, they could calculate 
the risks. Banks play, in particular investment banks, play in the real world of uncertainty, where surprises happen, where domino effects happen, where it's dynamic, where there are people who cheat, trick, and so on. This is the world of uncertainty. In this world, uh, my question is, how should we make decisions when not everything is known? Note, this is now the normative question of the descriptive one that Herbert Simon posed. And here, in this world, statistics and optimization is not sufficient. Statistics is not sufficient. Optimization is, per definition, not possible. So we need something else. And the tool I'm interested in are heuristics. And the goal is not optimization. That's an illusion. The goal is to find robust strategies that have a good chance to survive in an unknown future. So uncertainty, these are problems. Uh, so most of the time we live in a world of uncertainty. Whom, so what should you do with the rest of your life? Try to calculate that. Whom to marry? What job to take? Whom to trust? And, but we have a tradition in psychology and beyond to reduce all uncertainty to known risk. And then we study problems like the trolley problem in uh, moral psychology or the ultimatum game in experimental economics or choices between gambles in neuroeconomics. These are all worlds of certainty where everything is known. No surprises can ever happen. It is a, a big um, leap to believe that what we find in this world of certainties would generalize to the real world of uncertainty. Just imagine, since we cannot find the optimal answer for chess, so the sequence of move, if we would now try to find something, make a smaller problem where we can optimize, we might design a chessboard with four times four and only four figures on each side in order to be able to use our differential calculus. The solution we will find will probably not tell us very much about how to play chess in the real game. And this is a game with certainty. There is just a computational problem. I would like now to give you one example of a heuristic and then go into the uh, larger question. Who of you plays baseball? Cricket? Soccer? Okay, same person. <laughs> okay, assume you would play one of these games. A ball is coming in high. An experienced player knows immediately where he or she should run. How does he know? If you ask a player, have you ever interviewed a soccer player? You know what you get. Yeah. Intuition. Yeah. And it's intuition. These people know exactly what to do, but they cannot explain it. It's not in language. So what what is this mechanism that leads them where they are running to? And there are two theories about this. One is, it's a complex problem, so it needs a complex mental algorithm. That's not my theory. The other one is, it's a complex problem with lots of uncertainty, 
Therefore, the mind will probably have found a simple solution. And as we will see, the solutions are only simple because there's an evolved capacity that has already done part of the work. So let's first go to the idea, complex problems need complex solutions. Here is what Richard Dawkins, in his famous book, The Selfish Gene, tells us. When a man throws a ball high up in the air and catches it again, he behaves as if he had solved a set of differential equations in predicting the trajectory of the ball. Now, Dawkins, who otherwise in the same book has very interesting heuristic-like concepts of memes, here, I think he's going wrong. And he knows, of course, that it's very difficult to calculate the trajectory of a ball. And then he says, at some subconscious level, something functionally equivalent to the mathematical calculations going on. Note that he put the term as if into the equation. And for the non-economists among you, this is economic theory. And economic theory is deliberately as if. One does not want to try to model the decision processes, but one has an optimization calculus and says, okay, assume that people would know everything, would be omniscient and omnipotent, how would they behave? So if you would be God or a Laplacian demon, that's the approximation. Um, what I will show you now that a number of experiments showed that nothing like these uh, trajectory computations are going on in the mind of a player. And the best evidence we have is that simply heuristics. But first, let me ask, who of you knows how to compute the trajectory of a flyball? Here is, it's, is how it works. Yeah? And so the problem is not the computation note. The problem is the estimation of the parameters in the two or few seconds you have. In general, uh, we often talk about the mind as a computational device. The more important thing is the estimation. Because something like this can be easily wired in. And in perception it probably is. But here, you have to estimate the initial distance, the initial angle, alpha, and so on. And even if G is wired in, you know, that doesn't help you very much because you need to do these estimations. And the problem is that there is no robot, no computer who can do this in a reliable way in the time that you have. So how do people make these decisions if not as if? That's the as if version. And the answer is that experienced players use a number, a toolbox of heuristics. And I'll show you the simplest one. It has three steps, and we call it the gaze heuristic. It works only if the ball is already high up in the air. First step, fix your gaze on the ball. Second, start running. And third, adjust your running speed so that the angle of gaze remains constant. The player whom you see here, runs in exactly that way so that the angle of gaze remains constant. Do you see? And then he is there where the ball is coming down. Would you like to see it again? <laughs> the important thing here is that this player can ignore everything that was in the formula. And also those 
ingredients you may have noticed were not in the formula, namely the wind, the direction of the wind, the speed of the wind, and spin, which are very hard to put into a formula. <coughs> and this is a heuristic that replaces all these estimation problems by a single variable. This is the angle of gaze. We know that uh, a number of other species use the same heuristic to intercept prey or mates, and sometimes the difference is not too big, in three-dimensional space, so in water or in the air. Bees, bumblebees, for instance. How do they do this? They try to keep the optical angle constant. constant. That's all they need to do. And then they get the interception. Or if someone of you uh, is, uh, has a sailboat and there's another boat coming and you fear there might be a collision, you don't have to calculate your trajectory and estimate the other trajectory and see whether there's a, a meeting uh, intersection point in three-dimensional space. But you just keep your eye on the other boat. And if the angle remains constant, then just get out of the... <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> now, here we have a heuristic that works on evolved capacities. That means, for instance, tracking, the ability to keep your eye on a moving object, and there's a noisy background, is something that no computer, no robot today can do as well as a human person. And if you have a small child at home, then you will see that maybe by age three months, six months, it will start to try to exercise huh, the ability to keep her eyes on a mobile or something else that is moving because it wants to train to become a baseball player. <laughs> but this type of heuristics is useful for many other things, as we will see. So, now one could argue, why should anyone be interested in how decisions are actually made? And this is a typical neoclassical economist argument, but we also have many uh, people in the uh, cognitive sciences who just try to as if make as if Bayesian models or expected utility models hmm, that at least economists think of. They're just as if. They have nothing to do with how the decisions are being made. Hmm. And so... Here, the answer is that we have to show that there's something more be gained than just knowing what's going on inside. And so that we can actually make different behavioral predictions from a process model and not just about trying to see what's going on here. And I show this for the gaze heuristic versus the trajectory computation, the as-if model, the formula you just saw. The interesting thing is that even the goal looks different. So from the as-if model, the goal appears to be to compute the landing point and then run there. The gaze heuristic, here the goal is different. You need to intercept the ball. That's not the same. And actually players don't know where the ball is coming down. And you don't need to know that. And here are three predictions that show that uh, a good process model makes different predictions for behavior than an as-if models. And actually, the predictions 
that are verified, not only in experiments, but also in a real baseball game. First, the ASIF model would predict uh, the player runs to the landing point and waits to catch the ball there in order to have last-minute chances to um, yeah, adjust. The gaze heuristic doesn't make that prediction, but a different one. The player intercepts the ball while running because you have always move in order to make this uh, angle uh, into a straight line. And that's what the evidence shows. Second prediction, the ASIF model would suggest the players always run in a straight line. But the gaze heuristics and the other heuristics uh, ba uh, baseball players use, uh, they uh, imply the following prediction that sometimes players run in a slight arc. I'm not showing this prediction here, but just believe me for a moment. And that's what we find. Third prediction. From the ASIF model, it might be that you think the player would know where he's going. But experiments show that even experienced players have a hard time to, to estimate where the ball is coming down. And this is not a fallacy, although uh, at least many psychologists, if they would get in this field, they would declare this another fallacy like the so-called hot hand fallacy. And uh, because, as you know, see now, because if you don't have a good process model to understand what the real goal is, and how it's been achieved, yeah, then you will misunderstand many of human behaviors as cognitive illusions. And that's part of what the Kahneman-Tversky program is, has been done. So uh, let's go one step further. <clears throat> it is often said that heuristics are unconscious, like in the so-called system one. This is not true. Every heuristic which we have studied is both used in an unconscious way, as in most baseball players, if you interview them, they don't know how they do this, but also in a conscious way, the same heuristic. Remember the miracle on the Hudson River. A plane started, took off in LaGuardia Airport in New York, and after a few minutes, something unexpected happened. A flock of Canadian geese collided with the plane. Now, the jet engines of modern uh, jets are built to ingest birds, but not Canadian geese. They are too fat. <laughs> and the improbable happened. The geese flew in both engines, and then they shut off and it silenced. It got very still in the plane, and we know from the uh, reports of the... Uh, passengers that they noticed that suddenly it was quiet except hearing others to pray. What did the pilots do? The two pilots, Sullenberger and Skiles, they uh, <clears throat> turned around in order to find out whether they can make it back to LaGuardia Airport. That was a decision about life and death because you don't want to hit in before. How did they make that decision? Did they calculate the trajectory? They had all lots of measurement instruments. No, they used the same heuristic as the baseball player or many of the animals. In that case, where the plane is sailing, this means the following. The pilot 
looked out of the cockpit wind shield and fixated the tower. And if the tower goes up in your windshield, you, you know you don't make it. See that? And that was the case. So they changed their mind and tried something more risky, go into the Hudson. Hudson. Uh, Jeffrey Skiles uh, says the same thing in an interview, in his own words, without using the term gaze heuristic. And, and here we have an example of a heuristic that can be made conscious, and part of our work is to analyze these unconscious use of heuristics, make them conscious and use them in order to help experts to make better decisions. And you will later see more examples. So let me summarize that. What is a heuristic? A heuristic is a strategy that only looks at part of the information. And this is not a sign of dumbness or cognitive illusion. You need in an uncertain world and this landing is an uncertain thing. You need uh, strategies that are fast, that are frugal, and nevertheless accurate, and also safe. Uh, a computation can always introduce error, but that's very difficult uh, with the gaze heuristic, for instance. So that's a heuristic. A heuristic uh, builds on evolved uh, capacities, like the ability to track that are part of our inheritance, but also part we need to train these things. And there is not just one heuristic, but an adaptive toolbox. Because with only this heuristic, there wouldn't be good baseball players. So let me go into the larger vision about bounded rationality. Herbert Simon, who is called the father of bounded rationality, once said very clearly that the study of bounded rationality is not the study of optimization in relation to task environments. Nevertheless, two out of the three existing meanings of bounded rationality all rely on optimization. That is the world of risk. The first one is, the first meaning of bounded rationality is shared by most neoclassical economists it's nothing but optimization under constraints. That's a, a one version of Homo economicus. Uh, Ken Arrow uh, writes, bounded rationality procedures are in fact fully optimal procedures when one takes account the cost of computation. So that's meeting under constraints. Uh, Herb Simon once told me that he wanted to sue people like him. <laughs> who misuse his term hmm, for just the old story of optimization. The story is assume that we would know everything, how would we behave? Hmm. The second interpretation of bounded rationality is shared by most psychologists, and it looks diametrically opposed. While the first one emphasizes rationality, the second one emphasizes irrationality. So I cite from Danny Kahneman, he says, our research attempted to obtain a map of bounded rationality by exploring the systematic biases that separate the beliefs that people have and the choices they make from the optimal beliefs and choices assumed in rational agent models. 
Notice, although that looks like the opposite of the optimization under constraints thing, normatively it's the same. What many social psychologists, not just in economists, accept is the norms of the economists. They don't dare to touch this. But when there is a discrepancy between a law of logic, a law of probability, whatever the norm is, and the way you reason, the blame is on you, not on the model. When Daniel Bernoulli, long time ago, found out that the expected value model didn't work, and that reasonable people had different um, judgments, he did not blame the people. He blamed his model. Today, this all is changed. And it's interesting to ask why we live in a time where so many of us, particular academics, want to show how dumb everyone else is. <laughs> but the difference between the first two is also should also be emphasized. The uh, heuristics and biases program, they focus on process models, although they usually don't, don't get very far. They have a word like availability or... Uh, representativeness or affect heuristic, which can explain everything after the fact, but not predict. And, uh, but it's the right step to go. So, in our program on Homo heuristicus, we argue that we need to make computational models of heuristic, not just words, in order to make predictions, and also investigate in what world these heuristics are accurate and where they fail. That's called the study of ecological rationality. So rationality here is different. Rationality is not about consistency, as in Bayes' rule, or in transitivity. It is about the match between the mind and environment, between a heuristic and between certain environmental structures. And I will give you examples for that. So just to be clear, uh, these three are the common interpretations of rationality or irrationality. You find them almost everywhere. So behavioral economics is split up in these three programs. So up there, optimization under constraints, you have models such as prospect theory, uh, inequity aversion theory, or Leibson's hyperbolic uh, discounting, which are not process models, but they're as if models, and they just use the old structure of expected utility, maximization add a few parameters, and that's then seen as making it psychological. Uh, what uh, we try to do is to go a more radical step in studying decision-making under uncertainty. If you are in a world of risk, then use the probability calculus. And you can do expected utility maximization. But not so. This is not sufficient in a world of uncertainty. Here is the research program. Uh, the first question is a descriptive one. What's in the adaptive toolbox? And in the adaptive toolbox, uh, there are cognitive capacities, such as tracking or recognition memory, that are used by heuristics. And the heuristics are only simple because they exploit this. And the heuristics, since there are many, uh, are, there are fewer building blocks, like search rules, stopping rules, and decision rules, 
uh, th that also can be recombined in order to adapt to different situations. The second question is normative. And the normative study of heuristics is new. You will probably not find in current textbooks anything positive said about heuristics or normative, except that they are fast and frugal. <laughs> and the question here is, what types of environments does a given heuristic work in, and where does it fail? So this is our version of fleshing out Herbert Simon's idea of the pair of scissors. In order to understand behavior, you need to not only look into the mind, but also in the environment, and about the match. Together, they produce behavior. This is often overlooked in psychology because we love to attribute behavior to internal things, to our traits, to our attitudes, to our preferences. I will show you a few examples how much of our behavior is a combination between the internal and the external. And the, uh, the study of ecological rationality is done a study of uh, mathematics and computer simulation. So where we try to either prove situations where a simple heuristics yeah, cannot be better than, say, a linear model, or if uh, we can't prove that anymore because the world is too complicated and we'll do this with computer simulations. Intuitive design is the product of both, and we use the insights and the heuristics to help experts to make better decisions. The uh, term intuitive means that these expert systems mirror the structure of heuristics that people anyhow use. So they're not of the type adding and weighing, but they're of the type sequential decision-making. You look at one thing, that may be the decision, but not you look at the second one. And if you uh, work lots with doctors, as I do, and the next lecture will be about that, yeah, you will know how to help them to think straight is not by explaining them a logistic regression. So this will be the three parts of my talk. First, the adaptive toolbox. Reinhard Selten once said, Reinhard Selten is our only Nobel laureate in Germany in economics, uh, there's no probability in utility book in the brain which can be looked up like a telephone directory. But I've seen more and more behavioral economics and neuroeconomics assuming that utilities and values are in the brain, in the entire calculus. Paul Klimscher, whom I like very much and who is very uh, learned, huh? But he has this idea that even if economists say our expected utility models don't tell us anything about the brain, he thinks he tries to reify them and now look with brain imaging to find that. As if is an important thing. So um, the, what is as if? The Ptolemaean uh, theory about heavenly bodies is as if. So the Earth in the middle and circles and planets in circles and epicircles. So an epicircle is you go in a circle and then do this little thing. Yeah? Almost nobody had believed that this is a model about how planets move. It's just a model about how to make the good predictions, just like economists do. 
Now, if uh, this kind of neuroeconomics is going in this way, and I say this not to blame neuroeconomics, but to encourage them yeah, to go in a different way. So if neuroeconomics would uh, reify this uh, Ptolemaean uh, yeah, circle and epicircle models, so that would be like uh, going a, with a shuttle into space and looking for the epicycles. And of course, you might find something that looks like that. So... The adaptive toolbox is a different vision. We want to do psychology. We want to make good models about how people make these decisions. Here are classes of heuristics we study. And don't be overwhelmed. I will only talk about a few of them. And tracking number two, we just had the gaze heuristic as an example. Trust number three is something I will talk in the next lecture about. So the white coat heuristic is, um, if you see a white coat, trust it. That's how most of us work. Again, this heuristic is neither good nor bad. It is, and the question is, can we determine its ecological rationality? And the, this heuristic is ecological rational if your doctor knows the evidence so the scientific evidence for medicine. Second, if your doctor has no conflicting interest, that he earns money or he loses money if he doesn't do this bypass with you or the hip operation. And third, if your doctor doesn't do defensive medicine. That means advising you things that the doctor, he or she, would not advise to uh, her own uh, relatives in order to protect herself from you, the patient as a plaintiff. None of these three conditions holds in the U.S. So you need to think yourself. So that's also an illustration about what ecological rationality means. A heuristic is not good or bad per se, but it really works in certain environments and in others. Um, I will start with uh, an example from number four equal division. Here is a study, a large-scale study, about uh, what, how much time parents invest in their children. So on the y-axis, you see the child care received over 18 years in hours. And uh, take the first panel. What you see here is if a uh, parents have two children, both of them get the same amount of time. If parents have three children, the first one and the last one gets more, the middle one gets less. Are there middle-borns here? Hands up. <laughs> Poor guys, did you notice that? <laughs> Four children, same thing. The first one gets most, the last one gets most. Now, if the child spacing, so the the, the, the time between births is not one year, but two years, the effect is amplified. So the, the middle-borns get even less. It doesn't matter for those who have two, and so on. And here it's really dramatic. You don't want to be a family like that. <laughs> How to explain that? Traditional psychological thinking looks for internal explanations, preferences, attitudes, and so on. Uh, 
And it's always easy to come up with some after the fact. One would be that parents prefer firstborns and lastborns. That explains all the data, including the equal thing for the two uh, siblings, families. And you can easily come up with a, a story that the first ones are, yeah, you are so happy about the first one. Hmm? And the last one is so cute. <laughs> and the middle ones are, yeah. <laughs> I'll show you now a very different kind of explanation. Not about traits, not about attitudes, not about internal things, but about the match between a heuristic and the environment. And behavior is the outcome of this match. The heuristic is here 1 over n. That means you divide your time equally over your children, every day or every week or in some, some unit of this. And if the number of children is 2, then exactly the outcome is this what this heuristic suggests. But if the number is three, then this heuristic predicts that the middle one gets less. Why? You can see that the first one is a certain time alone, one year. Ha, uh ha, -huh, got it. Hmm. And the last one is also a certain time alone, usually on average, but the middle one never. So if parents try to do it equally, they end up with a totally different result. So that's the first environmental structure, the number of children. But there's a second one, the spacing. If it's two years as opposed to one year, the first one is for two years alone. And then, and the last one is also longer. And then you see how the, that the effect amplifies. What do you see here? You can do with a simple mathematics, can derive predictions from a simple heuristic that end up in a highly complex pattern that you can then verify with actual data. And you do not need any complex explanation for biases that parents would have. The parents do their best, but the environment also makes their contribution. That's the key idea about adaptive decision-making, that you, a heuristic will not determine itself what the result is, but the environment will do its part. And this is why we need to study the environment and not just insight. Second example, assume you have a certain amount of money and want to invest. Now we are in financial investment, no longer in parental investment, but there's some similarity. And you do not want to put everything in the basket, but you want to diversify. But how? So how much here, how much there, and so on. Harry Markowitz from the University of Chicago got his Nobel Prize in economics for the solution to that question. The solution is called the mean variance model or mean variance portfolio. Again, I'm not going in mathematics here. And the point is, again, not the calculations. The point is the estimation of all these parameters to the expected return of a certain stock or fund and the variance, the expected variance, and all the covariances. And you can see the larger the n, the number of these 
options that you consider is the higher, yeah, the uh, larger the number of uh, estimates you have to do, an anti-covariance matrix. When Harry, when Harry Markowitz made his own investments for the time after his retirements, he used his Nobel Prize winning optimization method, so we might think. No, he did not. He used a simple heuristic called 1 over n. <laughs> the same one. So allocate your money equally to each of n funds. So if you have two, 50-50. If you have three, a third, a third. That's very fast. You don't have to do any computations. Using the mean variance model, you need lots of data, such as 10 years of stock data in order to get somehow reliable estimates of all these uh, values. So now one can ask the question, how good is 1 over n compared to mean variance optimization? Remember, we are no longer in a world of risk. We are in a world of uncertainty. It's the real world, not the world where you write down your assumptions and your equations. And probably here in Markowitz sense that. We and us have done a number of studies in order to find out how good 1 over n is. I report briefly one study uh, by De Miguel et al. And uh, here, seven investment problems were considered, considered. One was 10 American industrial funds, and your task is to invest your money, to distribute it over these 10 options. Uh, 1 over n is done in a blink. And for the Markowitz optimization, there were 10 years of stock data, which is more than your bank probably uses. What was the result? In six out of seven tests, 1 over n made more money, as measured by shop ratio and other things. How can that be? And this is the interesting question is now one of ecological rationality. Can we identify the structures of the world where 1 over n will be better than the optimization models and vice versa? This is the real question. The question is not that optimization is always better. That's wrong. It's only better in a world of certainty. And also, the, my point is not that less is always more. But here we have a less is more effect. You do less. You don't even try to estimate any of these weights. And nevertheless, you do better. And here are three uh, structures of the world, not only of investment, more generally, where simple heuristics work. So if you have low uncertainty, this is not the stock market, only few alternatives to estimate and a high amount of data, then make it complex. Then calculate mean variance or do big data or any complex analysis. But if there is high uncertainty and stock market is extremely high, heart attack prediction is also very difficult. We'll see an example later. If you have many alternatives and small amounts of data, make it simple, like in 1 over n. And these are qualitative principles. And you can then, with computer simulation, ask quantitative uh, questions such as, 
uh, assume we have 50 alternatives, n equal 50, how many years of stock data would we need so that the mean variance portfolio actually gets better than this simple heuristic? Now, this can only be done under a number of assumptions. I'm not going into this. But the best answer that we have is, so remember that the original study had 10 years of stock data, and that was too little. What do you think? How many years would you need so that the mean variance portfolio now has a good chance to outperform the uh, simple heuristic? 20 years. Anyone who offers more than 20 years? So the best estimate is 500 years. <laughs> so in the year 2500, people can stop relying on the simple heuristics and doing the calculations, provided that the same stocks are still around <laughs> and the stock market in the first place. Do our banks understand this relation of ecological rationality? So when it pays to make these complex calculations and when it doesn't pay? I'll show you a letter I got from my internet bank. It is in German, I translate. The letterhead was, with Nobel Prize winning strategy to success in investment. And then I read, do you know Harry Markowitz? No, but you should. And then the bank explained that he won the Nobel Prize for that problem, and the bank now has adopted the strategy and then there was a warning of using your own intuition that may be too simple. What this bank has not understood is that they sent the letter 500 years too early. <laughs> <laughs> Another word on, the, um, on investment. I'm working uh, with the Bank of England on a program called Simple Heuristics for a Safer World of Finance. As you know very well, the uh, complicated opti optimization methods that rating agencies and banks use, they're called value at risk and uh, var variations of that, they missed every crisis and prevented none. <laughs> and I think you start to understand now why. Hmm? And uh, I have been working with Mervyn King, the uh, uh, former governor of the Bank in England, of the Bank of England, and now working with Andy Haldane, who is the executive director of financial stability, on this project. And the alternative is that we show what simple heuristics could make the world of finance safer. And if you're interested in that, uh, look up his Jackson Hole speech, "The Dog and the Frisbee." <laughs> You may recall where this comes from. It's the gaze heuristic, yeah, which dogs also use to catch a frisbee. And that speech was uh, named the speech of the year by the uh, Harvard Business Review. So, and now even the Basel III people start to use the term simplicity. There's lots of hesitation, like in the academic community, that simple could be anything good. But I'll try to influence you a little bit. Simple is not always good. The question is, when is it good? I come to the uh, second part, ecological rationality. Um, when we started this project, 
Peter Todd and I defined the ecological rationality as a heuristic is ecologically rational to the degree that is adapted to the structure of an environment. When Vernon Smith did his noble speech, he used the term ecological rationality in the title and acknowledged this. And he said he used it in the same way as we use it, but he also means markets and institutions with that. The origin of the term, as I reconstructed, comes from this wonderful year I spent at the Center for Advanced Studies in Stanford together with Lida Cosmides and John Tooby, where we wrote a proposal that never materialized together with um, a few others, I think, yeah? And, uh, and that was about ecologic rationality. So we uh, took it up, and the key idea is in Herbert Simon's work. It is his analogy of the pair of scissors. You will never understand how scissors cut if you just look at one blade, like the mind, or just in the environment. You need to look at the both. But the big challenge is how to, how to make this into a working program. And so let me give you uh, one insight in our study of ecologic rationality. Again, it's a study uh, that deals uh, with mathematics. So the tools are mathematics and computer science. First, here's the general question. Why do people use heuristics? And the message that you re read in all textbooks is because uh, there is an accuracy effort trade-off. That means a heuristic is uh, faster, so you need less effort, but you pay a price. It's less accurate. Hmm? You can read this in the wonderful book by Payne, Bettman, and Johnson, The Adaptive Decision Maker, which has computational models, but you find the same assumption by Kahneman, who has no computational models, only a system one and a system two, which I think is the nadir of theorizing in psychology. Usually you start with, with uh, ambiguous dichotomies and go on to precise model. This is the only case I know where we have gone in the other direction. We have precise models for heuristics. We have precise models for logic statistics. They are all lumped up in two black boxes. It's not my way of theorizing. So what you have seen by the examples I gave you, that the story of the accuracy effort trade-off as a general law of cognition is false. There are heuristics that can work with less effort and have more accuracy, say, compared to uh, Markowitz optimization and so on. So the story is not correct, but what is the actual story? And uh, the real trade-off that a mind needs to make is between bias and variance. I will explain that. So the, the classical story is the total error that a person makes is, yeah, there's some noise, irreducible noise, but there's a systematic bias. A systematic bias is typically something that you ignore. So uh, 1 over n has a systematic bias. It ignores all the information in the last 10 years. It's extreme in being biased. Yeah? The point is, 
that in the classical view, total error equals bias plus noise, you're always better off if you have no bias. That's the typical view you can find in social psychology. It's not correct. The, uh, the work in artificial intelligence and our work shows that to understand the total error, there are two terms. It's bias plus variance. What is variance? Variance, intuitively, is the sensitivity to every new information you get. If you do Bayesian updating on every piece of new information, you may be overly sensitive because much of this information is nothing worth. 1 over n yeah, has bias but no variance because it's insensitive to any information. So it's extreme. If you have a, uh, in general, variance is defined in the following way. You have a population and you take samples. And depending on what sample you get, you will get different solutions or parameter estimate. That's the, vari the, the variance across the mean. Huh? 1 over n has zero variance. It only suffers from bias. And this is a way to understand situations where uh, bias can actually be better because it reduces variance, and it's a trade-off between the two. I'll explain this with an example about temperature. What you see here is the temperature in London. In the year 2000, there are 365 points. Every point is the average temperature. Now, assume you want to understand how to model this temperature in London, and you have two polynomials. One is a degree three polynomial, the green curve. The other one is a degree 12 polynomial. What's a polynomial? A degree one polynomial is a line. It's not a good model of weather, at least not in London. <laughs> A degree two polynomial is a parabola, also not good because it never will get warm again. <laughs> so at least you need three that's coming back huh? and so on. And 12, of course, has more flexibility to adjust this. Now, which of the two models, the red degree 12 polynomial or the green, the simpler degree three polynomial has a better fit? And fit means the data is already there, and now you fit it. Now you see, the degree 12 polynomial has a better fit. Yeah, it's more flexible. And if you would have a degree 364 polynomial, it would be perfect fit, because you can get this through every point. But that's not the purpose of science, nor the purpose of an organism. Although we do do much fitting in our modeling, we need to show how can an organism predict, not fit? Fitting is hindsight. Now, here is the fit. So uh, expressed as an error. And you can see that the error is highest for a degree one polynomial, which is a bad model for temperature. And it goes down. And you see the following. The more complex the model, the better the fit. And if you would go on, to 364, we would have perfect fit, no error. If we now use these fitted models and predict the temperature the next year, or we use samples and predict the population the same year, how will the prediction curve look like? Will it be above or below the uh, fitting curve. So 
remember, above is more error, below is less error. What do you think? Above, yeah. It will be above. Uh, and because prediction is hard. Many people have been attributed the saying, yeah, <laughs> prediction is hard, particular if it's about the future. <laughs> From Mark Twain to uh, Yogi Berra to, uh, yeah, to Niels Bohr. Hmm? Okay. And if you're social intelligence, you know also the right answer because I left more space up here. <laughs> yeah. But the real question is, what's the shape of this curve? Is it also going monotonically down? Does this is in prediction, in an uncertain world, is it the case the more complex you make your model, the more the, uh, data you uh, can fit, yeah, the better it will be? Or is it going in the other direction? Or how is it? I had an answer from that. A U-shaped, yeah? yeah brilliant. Huh? Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah? And the, not everyone gets that. Yeah? And the, what do you see here is the, uh, the degree one model has a strong bias and it makes quite a lot of error. And it gets better here. But then, look at that. It gets really bad if you're a complex model. And what you see here is this model is a line, has a high bias and low variance. That model, degree 12, has a low bias, it is, can almost mimic everything, uh, but has a high variance because it estimates all these parameters and incurs lots of sampler. So here you have another interesting uh, thing. So starting from here, we have a less is more effect. So a simpler model does better. So ignoring information, not trying to estimate things is better. And Interesting is, if you're a real bias model, like a line, eh, you still predict better than here. Isn't that amazing? Hmm? In other words, you can think about this as a mind who uh, either doesn't want to learn, this is the bias, eh, has something built in and ignores. Eh? And uh, on the extreme, on the other side, is a mind who learns everything and reacts about everything, and therefore... Uh, and therefore makes errors. And the idea is a well-designed mind has a balance between stubbornness huh, and also the ability to pay attention. So here is an explanation why biased minds make better decisions. And under uncertainty, a degree of bias, as you have seen, is necessary for reducing error. And that's the formula again. And there are different ways to introduce bias into a mental system, into heuristics. Equal weights is one. Don't even try to estimate the weights. And you've seen, you can make more money on the stock market with that. Second, um, one reason heuristic, you just go with one uh, reason and ignore all the rest. The gaze heuristic is an example. And third, lexicographic heuristic. These are step-by-step -step heuristics. And I will give you an example of this. And here, at this point, I think we can already correct a number of misconceptions that fill all textbooks today. First, risk is not the same as uncertainty. 
And the best decision under risk is not the best decision under uncertainty. Markowitz, Nobel Prize winning model, is a good model and maybe optimal. If you, can, if you have a world of risk where you can estimate all parameters perfectly, but not in the real world. And there's a danger in our literature that we construct toy problems where we study our undergraduates on. They're all about everything is known. There's no uncertainty. And then we make inferences about what's going on in mind. This is a situation that certainly in human evolutionary time, rarely people encountered. It's like Lida has done a study on the ultimatum game where economists say it's a one-shot game, but in the real world, it's, you don't know whether an encounter is one-shot or a multi-shot, so you better, better think about these things. And, uh, and the solution, both the normative solutions are often not known, or slightly, uh, in any case, different. And the heuristic that people use uh, are certainly not the same thing. Second point, heuristics are indispensable and not second best. Uh, almost all the literature tells you that heuristics are second best and logic and uh, probability gives you the right answer. This is true in a world of risk, but not in a world of uncertainty. And also heuristics are not the product of a flawed system one. Uh, and third, biases are adaptive for reducing error. And you think the bias-variance dilemma explains that. And a rational mind has to make a trade-off between ignoring and being sensitive. And that's the real problem. In my last part, I'll apply this to expert decision making. And um, I start with a typical situation uh, in many hospitals. A man is rushed into the hospital with severe chest pains. The doctors need to make a decision whether to send that patient into the coronary care unit, suspecting, say, a heart attack, or into a regular bed with maybe telemetry. It's a decision that can be one about life and death, because if you get a heart attack, you don't want to be in the regular bed. But if you don't get a heart attack or something similar, you don't want to be in the coronary care unit. It's one of the most dangerous places to be on Earth. It's not true, better safe than sorry. A friend of mine, another director of the Max Planck Institute, died in such a situation in the ICU uh, from picking up a virus that was waiting there. And so how do you make these decisions? In a hospital in Michigan, doctors send about 90% of all persons into the coronary care unit, although only about 20% had a heart attack. That's called defensive decision-making because the doctors will be sued or run the risk of being sued if they send a patient in the regular bed with telemetry and, a, and there is an incident, but they won't be sued if the patient dies from something else in the coronary care unit. So that's an important uh, thing to understand that many doctors, particularly in a country that has this virulent litigation, as you have it here, hmm? <laughs> and the U.S. has more lawyers per capita than any country except Israel, <laughs> you need to be aware about that. So the problem was, consequence was, the, uh, the coronary care unit was overcrowded, quality went down, costs up. 
the hospital sent to the University of Michigan for medical researchers to help them. The researchers came and they saw a complex problem and the first idea was find a complex solution. What's the complex solution? It was an expert system that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine that consisted of a chart with some 50 probabilities and a pocket calculator. I'll show you the 50 probabilities. You do not have to understand that. You only need to understand that doctors also don't understand it. Hmm? They know what the variables are, but not where these numbers come from. Hmm? But the idea is, do you have for each patient uh, push in the, the relevant numbers and then push enter and then see whether the number is above a threshold that means coronary care unit and otherwise if it's down. The problem here was that the moment the researchers left the hospital, doctors stopped using that. If you ever work with doctors, most don't like these logistic regression systems, if only because they don't understand it. And everything went on with defensive decision-making. At this point, the PI from uh, the University of Michigan uh, learned about our research in Berlin, and he uh, realized, oh, we have a problem of high uncertainty here. Therefore, we need to find a simpler solution. And uh, they designed a fast and frugal tree, that's a technical term, i explain in a minute, for coronary care unit allocation, basically meaning for predicting heart attacks. A fast and frugal, so it went like this, only three questions are asked. Is there an SD segment uh, change, so an anomaly in the electrocardiogram? If yes, immediately coronary care unit. Otherwise, the second question is asked, are the primary complaints chest pain? If no, regular bed. If yes, a compositive question is asked, is one of these factors there? That's the end of the decision. Note that all 50 probabilities are gone. And the decision is different. It's sequential. And you go one step and you can end at the first one, at the second one, and the third one. A fast and frugal tree is defined as a decision tree that has an exit at each question. So in that kind of binary trees, so there are, if there are three questions, there are four exits. <coughs> now, that tree is fast, it's frugal, it's also transparent, and doctors can memorize that. They know these factors. And actually, this tree is still used in the hospitals. But the question is, how accurate does it predict heart attacks? And the study that was done uh, showed the following results. What you have here is the sensitivity, that means the proportion of patients correctly assigned to the coronary care unit, that means patients who actually got a heart attack. You want that have high. The proportion incorrectly assigned, you want that be low. And the ideal uh, method is up here, but there is nothing up here in the reality because it's too difficult, this problem. It's not as difficult as stock market, but it's still quite difficult. This is the chance diagonal. You don't want to be on that one because you send nobody or everyone in or you roll dice in between. And you don't know to be on that side huh? because it's worse than chance. I'll show you the results of the study. First, you see where the doctors are. Doctors, defensive decision-making. Where do you think that the point is where the doctors are? 
No? They're slightly below chains. So they send about 90% of those in who should be in and also about 90% of who should not be in, over 90% in. Yeah? This is, was the key problem up there. Now, how good is the complex logistic regression system, the hard predictive inventory? Um, you see an ROC curve. You see more than one points because you can change the threshold. Those of you who are familiar with signal detection theory, that's the, what you see here. And it's uh, on the right side. It's much better than chains. It's weak up there. There are, there are quite a number of misses which are problematic in that. Hmm? Now, this simple tree that you just saw, how good is it? If you see one point, it's outside of the ROC curve, so it's better than the complex method. It uh, gets almost everyone who has a heart attack and has a reasonable so 50% false positive rate. Here again, we have an instance where less is more. The, uh, the fast and frugal tree has only a subset of the information the heart disease predictive instrument has. And nevertheless, it does better. And now you can understand why. Because there, it, is, it is bets on bias. And there was one incurs too much uh, variance. And here is a, a, a general statement about this kind of lexicographic heuristics. So lexicographic means that there are heuristics like the fast and frugal tree. You go one step, you can stop here, but you can go on and so on. Take the best is another one. In the traditional literature, the statement that I quote here from Keeney and Reifer in the book on multi-aptitude decisions is... Uh, that lexicographic heuristics are more widely adopted in practice than it deserves to be. Hmm? People do it, but they shouldn't do it. They are naively simple and will rarely pass a test of reasonableness. They do not report the test of reasonableness in their book. Yeah? They know that already, yeah? that optimization is always better. Huh? That's not optimization. And you've just seen an example that this is not true. And here I show you, besides the mean variance dilemma, another way to think about ecological rationality. And this is about the structure of the cues. You saw some of these cues, you know, electrocardiogram and so on. And here is a simple example. You assume binary cues. This is the weight of the first one, of the second one, of the third one. If the weights are non-compensatory, such as... Yeah, one, a half, a quarter, an eighth, and so on, eh? then you can mathematically prove that there's no linear model that can more, make more accurate uh, predictions than a model that just goes with the first cue. They will all get to the same ones. There are two other conditions. This is the first one, which I'm not explaining here. And the interesting thing is, then when we started to study environments, it turns out that, now the question is, if any of the following three environmental structures exist, no linear model, whatever it is, can be more accurate than, they take, than take the best and similar lexicographic rules such as fast and frugal trees. And uh, in a search among uh, that kind of natural environments that are on the 
uh, in the typical uh, databases about uh, demographic things, about uh, finding partners, about whatever, whether it's some criterion, uh, finds that in about roughly 80% of all environments, one of these conditions holds. So that means just relying on the best cue or going in a lexicography thing is in most of the situations ecologically rational in the sense that you have uh, judgments that are faster but not worse than a logistic regression. That also illustrates that the usual story about biases, if you ignore information, don't believe in that. You need to ask the question, in what world yeah, is ignoring good and where is not good? That's the true question. So uh, this is another application of a fast and frugal tree for checkpoint decisions. So these are very dramatic decisions where in Afghanistan, for instance, there's a road, there's a checkpoint, and a car is approaching, and the people at the checkpoint need to make a judgment. Yeah? Is that a terrorist who's going to blow us up or just a civilian? And in these decisions, many, many errors have been made. Typically, innocent people have been shot. And we worked with the German forces and uh, designed a simple tree. It's again a uh, fast and frugal tree that just asks three questions, which can ask in this fast situation where you need to make a decision on the fly, does the car have a single occupant? If no, assume it's a civilian. If yes, ask a second question. Is the car approaching with high speed? Then assume suicide attacker. And then there's a final question, whether they have information about the type of the car in this. This simple tree, and this is now prediction, is not data fitting. Huh? So it was fitted on just half of the data and predicted on the other half that it uh, could have reduced the civilians wounded from 146 to only 79, and sim similar reduced the number of civilians killed to more than half. It's a systematic way to deal with uncertainty hmm? by acknowledging that you need to find something simple that works better than whatever is being done. How is such a tree constructed? Uh, we used an optimization model, signal detection theory, to understand the trees. And a key question is, to balance the misses and the false alarms. So in the case of the uh, suicide attackers, there were too many false alarms. And for every tree, so how to order the exits? Uh, so we realized that ordering the exits uh, gives you uh, the position at in uh, signal detection theory. For instance, the uh, coronary care unit has this structure. The checkpoint has that structure. This structure here, uh, minimizes misses that you have seen. Hmm? That's very important here. False alarms are not so a problem. But here the key problem are the civilians. So you want to minimize the false alarms. Hmm? So that was the short excursion into our research on how do people deal with uncertainty and how they should. And I've tried you to give you an introduction in to the adaptive toolbox, into the notion of ecological rationality and intuitive design. And I hope for those of you who have not thought in these categories that you have a few sleepless nights eh, and deal with these issues, I think this is a wonderful approach 
to get sanity into the study of rationality. Thank you very much. Yes. <clears throat> this is Nassim Talib, huh? Nassim Talib's idea. Uh, he has written a book about this with the term anti-fragility. Uh, I am with Nassim Talib, huh, who is visiting us lots in Berlin, uh, f uh, in his analysis about uncertainty and heuristics. Anti-fragility is the idea that actually, uh, if you get hit, that helps you. Huh? So it makes you stronger. And uh, that's the idea of the, uh, and there are a number of phenomena like that. Uh, this is a, not exactly the issue I was talking here about, but it's, it's like a, it's a vaccination is an example for that. If you hit the, the body, uh, it gets stronger because it develops antibodies. That's the idea applied to other things. It is always a question how large it goes. Yeah? If you have many divorces, get hit every time, whether that's good a thing and you get stronger, it's another question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you make a very nice argument uh, how the value of heuristics can be established without consideration of speed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're quick, you yeah. point out. However, do you see situations like an evolutionary history where the rapidity of a decision-making rule would, in fact, help to explain its uh, development? So speed is a factor here. And at least in, this, uh, in the baseball player example, yeah, speed is important. For the pilots, speed is important, but not always. So the heuristics, the interesting thing is, part of the key argument is that even if uh, frugality and speed is not important, even if the costs are zero, hmm, you still can identify a situation where a heuristic does better. Hmm. So that contradicts the anti-accuracy trade-off story. It also contradicts optimization under constraints. Hmm. And to understand that, the important distinction is between uncertainty and, and risks. But they might come into existence even if they're less accurate because they're faster. Yeah. You're, still, you're not yeah. throwing that out. No, no. There are, there are certainly situations where, where I would just do something quickly because it doesn't pay. Huh? But that's not the key argument for heuristics. This is your chance to ask the questions you always wanted to ask. <laughs> you seem to... Uh I think make exceptions for perception hmm. um, as opposed to making conscious decisions. Is that correct? Yeah. That's a good question. I'm not entirely sure. The, um, so the, the strong argument would be that heuristics are the way that people and animals deal in their everyday life. But uh, they hardly wired in uh, cognitive capacities are non-heuristic. That would be an ex and also maybe scientific discovery. This was Roger Shepard's view about what we are doing. Huh? So that's a view about everything except the real uh, things up there in discovery and also in uh, down here in the perception. I'm not entirely sure whether that's true. We have certainly have a few examples about perceptual heuristics that are quite simple. Uh, 
that can explain some of the, uh, of the visual illusions. And about scientific discovery, on the other end, um, nobody knows how it works. And it certainly doesn't work analytically. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a discovery. So it must be something intuitive, something that could be heuristics. And I only worked about one discovery heuristic that Lita mentioned before. Uh, this is the uh, from tools to theories heuristic, so that works in many social sciences. You get familiar with a tool for data processing, statistics, the computer, and then you project it into the mind as a theory of the mind. Huh? Signal detection theory. Uh, now we have Bayesians who believe that the mind is a Bayesian, although the mind cannot be a Bayesian because uh, in order to be Bayesian, uh, you need to know all the alternatives. You need to uh, somehow reliably estimate the uh, prior probabilities. And finally, you need to be able to do the computations. And you can only do them, really, uh, if the problem is very simple and you don't have many cues. Otherwise, it gets computationally attractable. Bayes is also a, a good example about uh, a technique that has its place. If you're good frequency data and the problem is not too big, then be Bayesian. Otherwise, go for fast and frugal trees. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I understand the problem of overfitting um, in prediction. Um, I also noted that you said that um, heuristics are not always the best solution. Um, I think I remember that Albert Einstein once said that always keep answers as simple as possible, but just not too simple. So my question is, where do you actually know? Where's the right point of simplicity? And isn't that the question that, that is the really important one? It is correct that this uh, proverb is attributed to Einstein. We don't know <laughs> as many things, but it's probably true. The, uh, the, the study of ecological rationality tries to, to give answers to that. Huh? And if you remember the U-shaped curve huh, that identifies the point, more generally, the trade-off between bias and variance will determine it. And the trade-off depends on uh, at least these three structures that I showed. So how much data you have. If you have more data, then, then lean towards the complex. So the, the, the valley here will move over there. If you need to estimate many, many parameters, that will hurt you. And uh, then the entire stability of the world which you're dealing with. So these are the, the, the answers that we got, and I could only give you a glimpse here, but I would just love if smart people here would get interested in that work and help us to understand huh, the conditions outside that help us to be successful with very little information. Yeah. It's always that Americans, and this was the primary yeah. group, are hardwired to think bigger is better. Oh, so yeah. They always yeah. make decisions yeah. to do that, yeah. even though it didn't, it wasn't the optimal decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is also my stereotype from spending many years here. <laughs> Everything is bigger, the refrigerators, the cars. And the, uh, but a particular in medicine, that's a real problem. Because many people, but not only in the U.S., also in, in Europe, maybe more here, assume that more treatments more medication, more drugs are always better. And that can hurt you. Because every drug has side effects. 
And if you take a number of trucks, nobody can tell you what the interaction is. There isn't, it's not possible to run these studies. And you may be right that there is a kind of uh, social, or it's even a value huh, that is defined by that. Get more, more is always better. Um, but you could test this. Come over to Berlin and test ours. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.